So yeah, today we're going to be talking about friendship. And it's an interesting topic. Maybe some of you thought, what? That's a bit of a weird thing to be talking about. It sounds a bit cheesy or cliche or... And I think that's because as a society, friendship isn't something we massively value. And to be frank, I'm not sure if even in sort of Christian church circles, if friendship is something that we necessarily value. I've been in church, um, I've been, uh, grew up in church, I've been in church 32 years. I could count on one hand, maybe one finger, the number of sermons or talks I've heard on friendship. It's not something we really talk about a whole lot. If you look at the top 40 now on Spotify, the top 40 songs, you're probably not going to find too many songs on friendship because it doesn't really interest us a whole lot. I mean, if you look at it, you're going to see tons on romantic relationships and sexual relationships, but friendship doesn't seem to have that same appeal and intrigue. But it hasn't always been that way. In fact, back in ancient times, it was very different. Now, C.S. Lewis, he's written a book called The Four Loves. I really recommend it as a book, especially the chapter on friendship. And in that book, he talks about this. He says, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves. The crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. And that's true of our day. We admit, of course, that besides a wife and a family, a man needs a few friends. It is something quite marginal, not a main course in life's banquet, a diversion, something that fills up the chinks of one's time. How has this come about? I love that quote, not just because C.S. Lewis is an amazing writer, amazing with his words, but he raises a question of the reality of our time, which is friendship doesn't seem to really be of massive value to us. And his argument, one of many, is that the most obvious reason why so few of us value friendship is because so few of us have experienced friendship. And we can think that we have tons of friends because we're in lots of WhatsApp groups that we're having to mute because they're doing our heads in, or we're, we're, we're friends with people on Facebook, or maybe, you know, at work we're, we're surrounded by people, or we come to church and we're sat in a room surrounded by people, and we can think, yeah, I've got tons of friends. But the truth is, are we actually encountering meaningful, genuine friendship? Well, statistically, the answer is no. The UK, in a study done of all of Europe, the UK was found to be the loneliness capital of Europe. The UK. And in studying the UK, what do you think was the loneliest place in the whole of the United Kingdom? Where you're sat right now. City of London. So not only are we in the loneliest nation in our continent, we are in the loneliest city in our nation. And not only that, the things that I think is most intriguing, and a study came out again, it was on the BBC last week, they keep finding these studies, is this. Now, the younger generation is more lonely than the older generation. We have this stereotype of, you know, kind of, you know, just old ladies sat on their own at home and desperately lonely, but young people full of friendship, full of life. Yet statistically now in the UK, you're more likely to be lonely if you're under the age of 25 than if you're over the age of 65. That's the state of our nation. That's the state of the city we're in right now. 
And it's interesting for me, uh, this whole thing of being strangers in a crowded room. A few weeks ago, um, we had um, uh, back at 5th of November, like a little bonfire night at our house. And we invited a few of our neighbours, as well as some church folks. I know you, uh, some of you are there. And we had uh, one of our next door neighbours turn up. And then a the lady who lives two doors down on the other side. And as this uh, lady came, I introduced her to the couple who live next door, thinking, well, obviously they know each other, but I'll do the polite thing. And I'll say, oh, Lynn, this is, this is Janet and Martin, as you know. And she said, wait, wait, who are you? I've, I've never seen you before. Where are you from? How do you know the boys who live here? And they said, well, we, we're their next door neighbor. How do you know them? And she said, well, I live three doors down on the other side. And the mad thing is this. Both of them have lived a matter of meters apart for over 30 years. 30 years. Well, one was 29 years, one's 37 years on the same street, terraced houses. And not only had they not met each other, they didn't even recognize each other's faces. 30 years. Mad. That is the state of our nation. That is the state of Sidcup. So what do we do about it? We can get depressed. Yeah, it's pretty depressing, to be honest. But it's also quite exciting. Because we have an opportunity like never before. We have an opportunity as a church to model something different. To be a light in the lonely darkness. That's the opportunity we have. And Jesus said this in John 13. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you what? If you love one another. He's saying, this is the thing that will most distinguish you as people who follow me. The thing that will make Christians stand out the most of all things is how they love one another. And I think that's fascinating. Of all the things that Jesus could have said, what, what, I mean, what do you think he might have picked? What, what distinguished Christians most in your heads? This is how that people will know that we are Jesus' disciples, by the fact that we don't swear. This is how people will know that we're Jesus' disciples, by the fact that we perform miracles. Now, the thing that Jesus said makes us the most different from those around us is the way in which we build friendships with one another. Would you say that's what defines us as a church in the UK? As new community church? Something to think about. See, friendship has always been a part of God's plan. Right from the very beginning. If you've got a Bible with you, you can open up to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. We're not going to read it, but you'll see within the first few chapters, God says this. It is not good for man to be alone. And I think we've almost... Uh, detracted the real value of that verse we often just quote that when it comes to marriage and yeah it's great they get married and yeah God made Eve for Adam to be his wife and marriage is a beautiful and wonderful relationship yet if we distill the 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 beauty of relationship and friendship purely down to a marriage relationship we've missed so much of God, God, what God has made for us see we were designed to be in community that's how God made you and Jesus modeled it himself. When God came to earth, it wasn't just a thing of him kind of saying all these things. But no, when he came to earth as Jesus, he modeled what friendship looked like. He didn't just say, you know, I don't really need any friends. I don't have that much time. And to be honest, my father God is all I need. He's all I need. 
No, it wasn't. Jesus needed friends. And we see this most poignantly in his final moments before he's arrested before his crucifixion. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, I don't know if you're an introvert or extrovert or if when you're in a good place or a bad place, you want to be around people. But Jesus, in one of the hardest moments of his life, when you could have felt, you know, he just wants to not be near people, not talk to people, not be let down by people. He says, Peter, James and John, tonight is going to be a, a horrible one. I need you with me. And he takes them with him. Goes off and prays for a bit. And he comes back and you know, he's actually hurt when they've fallen asleep instead of praying for him. Because he loved his friends. That's why he cared that they'd fallen asleep. Because he's like, hey, I need you guys right now. So what did Jesus say about friendship? What were some of the things he taught us? Well, first of all, Jesus taught this. He taught that there's this, uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, you become incredibly inclusive, but then also there's an element of exclusivity. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, Jesus modeled an incredible inclusivity. Jesus was frequently hanging out with people who everyone said, stay away from them. Don't hang out with them. You don't be associated with them. Don't, you need to be above reproach. Don't go near them because you'll have a bad reputation. Now, Jesus reached out to people who had nothing like him and who got him in a, in, a, in a lot of hot water for being with them. People like prostitutes, thieving tax collectors. Social outcasts like lepers. He did this regularly. And one of the clearest examples of this is when he meets with a Samaritan woman at a well during the day. Now this was deeply controversial in two ways. One, one that he um, was with a Samaritan. Now if you know your, uh, your history of the time, you know that the Jews were arch enemies of the people from Samaria. They hated Samaritans. They wouldn't talk to them. They wouldn't make eye contact with them. You would never have one in your house. And yet Jesus is talking to one of them. Secondly, she was a woman. Now in that time, just like it is in many cultures around the world today, men should not interact with women. No, no, no. You need to be above reproach. That is scandalous. Do not go near a woman that could lead to all sorts of sin. Avoid women. Stay apart. And we see such cultures still in many places around the world today. Yet Jesus chatted to and was warm with and encouraged and inspired and befriended a Samaritan woman. And while Jesus modeled an incredible inclusivity... He also showed the importance of a healthy exclusivity. See, I think we can have this notion that if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to be best friends with everyone. You can't have any favorites. You can't kind of be particularly close with one group and not the others because that's cliquey and a little bit harsh. Yet Jesus modeled something a little bit different. See, Jesus, we, we read as we've seen, it's constantly, constantly welcoming whoever would come to him, he would accept. Yet there were also smaller groupings that he was intentional to spend more time with. So at one point we hear about him sending out the 72. So a group of 72 people, he said, all right, I want you to go out on this mission. So he would have, maybe a group about this size, he would have known their names, might have known quite a lot of their stories, but he invested extra time in them. Next you hear about the 12 disciples. So a smaller group, a smaller group of guys who he spent loads of time with, who he was always hanging out with. He invested in the 12. But within the 12, 
there was also the three, Peter, James, and John. And we read of multiple times where he spent special time, like the Garden of Gethsemane or the Mount of Transfiguration, where he spent time with just the three. Now, you could look at that and say, wow, maybe some of the disciples did this. It's a little bit cliquey, isn't it, Jesus? It's a bit exclusive, isn't it? Surely you need to be kind of open to all. Maybe the 72 thought that of the 12. But the reality is, whilst we want to have completely open arms and amazing breath, say, hey, look, I want to chat to and get to know whoever. If you want to have depth in your friendships, there has to be an element of saying, these are the people, the specific people I want to go deep in. Because the truth is, you can't have amazing breadth and amazing depth. And so biblical friendship is one where we say, I want to have open arms, yet there's a certain number of people who I'm going to invest even deeper in. And as well as having the three, Peter, James, and John, Peter had John, the one, described as the one whom Jesus loved, his beloved. And again, modeling that it's okay to have a close friend. You're like, this is, you know, my, my beloved, my best friend, and there's some unique bond in our relationship. So amazing openness and inclusivity and the depth of exclusivity. Secondly, Jesus models that friendship is a family that crosses borders, blood, and boundaries. In the Bible, as a church, we're described as a family, as a family. And there's this really interesting story in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus is in this packed out room, and he's teaching people, and all of a sudden, he gets a little tap on the shoulder. And someone comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, your, um, your mom and your sister's outside, and they want to have a chat with you. Can you just stop what you're doing? And here's what Jesus says to them. He says, but, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Jesus was the one who on the cross was trying to find a disciple to look after his mother. Jesus is the God who said in his top 10 laws, the 10 commandments, he said, honor your father and mother. So he deeply values family. Yet in this moment, he's trying to prove a point to them. And what he's trying to say is, as part of this new kingdom, whilst our blood relationships are so important, there's now something that goes far deeper. He's saying, if you're a child of God, then you are a brother and sister with every other child of God, which means your relationship, even if you have nothing on paper in common with that other person, other than the fact that you're both those who are children of God, then you have more in common than even your closest relative. It's why you have more in common, if you're a Christian here today, with some of those people in the middle of a slum in Nairobi who are followers of Jesus than people who aren't followers of Jesus, who are in your family. That's this new kingdom way. And so it shifts our priorities. It means that we're not so much interested in blood, but we're interested in the family of God. And this looks like a lot of things. First of all, it means that we want to build bridges amongst people in different stages of life. This is something I've seen modeled so, so well by Niall and Catherine Crozier. 
These guys are amazing at presenting a picture of what it means to not just hang out with people like yourselves, but building relationships with those unlike you. So this is a couple in their 20s who, if they were modeling the pattern that we see mostly around us, it would be, you know, hang out, just the two of you mostly, or if you are going to hang out with some people, hang out with other couples in their 20s. That's the standard we see in society. Yet instead, what these guys have done, and I know they're probably deeply embarrassed I'm sharing this, and I don't care, they're amazing at doing it. What they have done, I experienced this firsthand, they invite singles into their house. They're not like, oh, will it be awkward, you'll be the third wheel. No, no, no. As a single eight, it's okay, you can invite us into your home, it's all good. They hang out with older couples. These guys, I'll see them chatting on Sundays, they often come in the morning as well, chatting to couples 30, 40 years older than them. They're like, yeah, we're going for dinner together. So admirable, such an inspiration to us. But they've pictured something, which is we're not, we're not just trying to hang out with each other or with our families. We're, we're part of something bigger, a broader family. And so we build bridges across different stages of life. Secondly, building across the bridge of race. And I think we're in an interesting time of life and an interesting culture, especially being in London, where we can think that we're doing pretty well on this diversity thing. Because we can look around London and see so many different races and nations and ethnicities represented and be like, yeah, yeah, we're pretty good at this. And even in the church, we can think, well, actually, there's different people in our church building and our meetings and say, yeah, we're, we're doing well. But the question is, are we building genuine friendships across different races? And I just want to say one of the best things you can do is get to know someone who's from a different nationality or ethnicity than yourself. One of the things I've enjoyed most from the past year of 2018 was getting to know more about Nigerian, Ugandan, and Zimbabwean culture. I've tried to get more into Afrobeats. I think I'm there now. I'm enjoying it. I've tried dancing to Afrobeats. If you've seen that, you'll know that hasn't been such a success in the past year, mostly an embarrassment and failure. I've eaten food that has ruined my tongue and probably my digestive system, but it's been amazing. It's been so much fun because there's so much beauty and richness that comes from hanging out with people who are different than yourself. And yeah, it's a little bit weird and awkward at times. And you might go to a Nigerian restaurant and hypothetically then after two hours the food doesn't come and you have to leave and, you know, there's a few awkward conversations. Hypothetically, obviously that never happened with anyone in this room. Um, but stuff like that can happen. But you laugh it off, you joke about it and you say, hey, look, we're different, this is funny. We all have our quirks. But there's a beauty in saying, look, we're brothers and sisters. We look nothing alike, but we are brother and sister in Christ. Building bridges across gender. Here's a quote from Jen Wilkin, buckle up. The way that most pastors are taught to think about the opposite sex is only as a potential sex partner. But do you know what the New Testament says about men and women? The paradigm is brothers and sisters. And if your only concept of a relationship with a woman who is not your wife is that she is someone that you might accidentally sleep with, then you have a shriveled understanding of male-female relationships in the church. Jen Wilkin, a great author and speaker whom I know many of you love, it's a pretty challenging quote. What she's basically saying is this, and if you listen to our full talk that this comes from, I can send you a link, excellent talk. What she's saying is this, 
in a desire to safeguard our marriages from infidelity, which is a really great thing, what we've done is we've made the primary way in which we view people of the opposite sex, we've made the primary way we view them as sexual threats. And as a result, we have lost the richness of friendship across the sexes. And she says, whilst there's so much good and it's so important to be wise in our decisions, to have healthy safeguards in place, actually the primary way in which the New Testament talks about male-female relationships within the church, and the primary way in which Jesus modelled male-female relationships, including with the woman at the well, is that we are brothers and sisters. Not people to be feared, but brothers and sisters to be known and loved. And I think one thing that we can really do in this culture that has so sexualized the opposite sex is to build a picture of what it means to have healthy, platonic, brother-sister relationships, which our world says isn't really possible. And to be honest, which our churches for many years have also said isn't really possible. We have an opportunity to show the world something different. So how do we build strong friendships? Well, let's get really practical. Four C's for the people who like taking notes. Commitment, consistency, care, and conversation. Commitment. Do you want to make friends? It's going to take effort. It's going to take involvement. I had someone recently, a couple of weeks ago, say to me, oh, you're so lucky to have your close friend, Joel. I know a lot of you have met Joel. He's come to visit the church several times. He's my best mate. We're really, really close. And people are like, wow, you're so lucky. And the truth is, it's a real blessing. But what happened is, 10 years ago, we were both sat in a slightly awkward Bible study meeting, and I was trying to get a bit of conversation going. We'd been talking about accountability, and I was like, I've never had an accountability partner. I'd love to just meet up with someone every week who I could talk about my life with, someone who could challenge me on my sins, someone who could encourage me to be more like Christ. And Joel was just like, I'll do it. And my only experience of it been uh, that week was him, like the really cool kid in our halls of residence at uni. And I was like the nerdy kid. I'd just been through a breakup. I was a little bit emo and writing poetry. It was a bad time of life. We don't need to go there. The long hair look, all that, it was not, it was not great. So I probably just flicked my hair back and was like, all right, let's do it. And since then, we have been close friends. We've been on holidays. We've been to each other's, we know each other's families really well. We've been through highs and lows. He's challenged me on stuff. I've challenged him on stuff. He's made me cry. Uh, he's not really the crying type, but you know, I'm sure I've made him upset. Um, but we fought for this friendship. It's not a lucky thing. Even now, even though we live a couple hundred miles apart, he's in Nottingham, every Friday morning, we Skype. Every Friday morning, we'll Skype each other. We have questions we ask each other. We'll say, that thing was happening this week. How did that go? We fight for it because friendship takes commitment. And sometimes I chat to people in church. This happens quite regularly, I guess. And people say things to me like, I just, I'm I'm not sure if I'm going to hang around in church much longer because I'm not not really making friends. And I'll say, I'm sorry to hear that. I'm I'm sorry. I say, how have you found trying to make friends with the people in your serving team and I'll say what do you mean I was like you know what what team do you serve and you're getting to know those people and they'll say more often oh yeah no I'm, I'm not really serving in any areas I'll say okay what well what about in your community have you found that a bit easier getting to know people in your community group and they say oh, I'm I'm not actually in a community group 
oh, okay, cool. And I said, oh, but what about like when you try to invite people to your house for a meal? Like, have the people been responsive? Well, I haven't actually invited anyone. I just thought people would invite me. And I want to be, yeah, let's, let's be real. It's not easy. It's awkward, you know. It's not always straightforward. But church is about the easiest place on the planet that you can make friends. People here are genuinely very nice. When I moved here, I hardly knew anyone. I kind of knew James. He offered me a job here. But we weren't exactly super tight. And I came into this church, like many of you, knowing hardly anyone at all. And it took a bit of effort. And I was hoping maybe a few more people might invite me to theirs. But I was like, you know, I can sit here and moan and suck my thumb or I can invite them to my house. So you invite them around. You get involved in a serving team. You start going to a community every week. And especially when you don't feel like it. Just being on the list of, yeah, I'm part of the Babington community and going once every seven weeks isn't probably going to help you build any friendships. And I know this might sound a bit heavy and whatever, but it's simple stuff. If you want to build friendships, it takes work. It takes effort, but it's worth it. It's one of the reasons why coming to church every Sunday is so important. It's another way to just connect with people. If coming once every few weeks, you lose that consistency. Commitment is so important. And the more intentional you are, the more you invest, the more you reap the rewards. So commitment. Secondly, consistency. It's a really great article by David Brooks, who wrote for the New York Times, in which he described us as the golden age of bailing. The golden age of bailing. And he explains that there's this increasing phenomena where people feel really, really relaxed about being flaky and inconsistent. He says this, I'm struck by how many people are quick to bail and view it as, unproblematic, as an unproblematic act. And his argument is that we've used this sort of trump card of saying, oh, I'm just a bit busy, to be the sort of like get out of jail free card. You say that, whoo, no one can question it. And he said another part of the problem is, is technology and smartphones. And he says, and I thought this was quite interesting, he said, bailing has become as easy as cancelling an Uber. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's easy to just bang someone a text and say, oh, you know, I can't really do tonight now rather than having to look them in the eye and say, oh, you know that thing that I said three weeks ago I would do with you? Well, yeah, I, I, I don't actually want to do it now. And see the disappointment on their face. It's very different. But with a smartphone, ah, oh, it's just a quick, sorry, can't do it, not feeling great, whatever it is, whatever your go-to line is. And Brooks talks about the power of being consistent. He says... If you don't flake on people who matter, you have a chance to build deeper and better friendships and live in a better and more respectful way. Jesus puts it in a slightly different way in Matthew 5. He says, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus is saying be a person of your word. If you're someone who said, I'm going to be at this, be at the thing. Don't cancel last minute. Be someone who, when the message goes out, you don't just read it and leave the little two blue ticks on someone's WhatsApp thread and never apply. Don't ghost people. Commit. Don't flake. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I know people felt the conviction in that one. You can see it around the room. People are getting fidgety. Oh, dear. 
you're thinking for your WhatsApp thread, like, oh, yeah, I've got about five of those messages I haven't replied to. Hey, well, reply to them after the meeting. Not now, but reply to them. See, the thing is, look, again, I don't want this to come across as heavy because I'm part of this as well. I know it's like even today, two people saying, hey, do you want to hang out this day and that day? I'm like, oh, I kind of prefer to that, but I kind of commit to that. I get it. It's not easy. And we want to have control. The reason we bail is because we want to have control. We want to have control even up to the last minute. But you can't have both control and community. Friendship takes sacrifice. It means turning up even when you're like, oh, I have had a long day and I wish I hadn't made this commitment to be at the badminton community. But I've committed to it, so I'm going to be there. Let your yes be yes. Turn up, follow through. Consistency, commitment, care. Third one, care. Again, you might say this is pretty simple. It's pretty obvious stuff. But if you want to stand out, if you want to be a light in the darkness, care about people. I remember a while back, I was amazed at how whenever I spoke to my friend Helen about stuff happening in my life, maybe I was having an interview, or I was feeling unwell, or there had been a family problem going on, she would always remember to text me on the day that the thing was going to happen, or text me later to say she was praying about it. And after a while, I was like, you're one of the most caring friends I've ever had, Helen. How do you do it? Your memory is amazing. You said, oh, no, my memory's terrible. I just make a note in my calendar every time you tell me something that I'm going to pray for. And I was like, that is so simple, but it's genius. And ever since I started doing that, it has changed so many of my relationships. So here's an example. When I go see my barber, some of you have heard me talk about it, and this is something I'm praying for him. One day he's going to be in this room, praise God. But I, I want to I get to know him more. So when I go see him, when we chat, he'll tell me stuff about his family. And then I'll write stuff in, my, in a little note on my phone. You might say, that's creepy. Oh, well. I'll write a little note. I know his daughter's names. If I forget, I'll open up, open up my note. I know things that we talked about last time. And if there's certain days things are happening, for example, this year, I knew Christmas Day was going to be rough for him. So I set a reminder on my phone, text him Christmas Day. So Christmas Day comes around, it comes up on my phone. I text him, within 15 minutes he's replied. And he's just, he's just so grateful. Like all I've done is literally set a reminder on my phone to show him I care. And he's so grateful. If you have a smartphone, you have an amazing, amazing tool to show people that you care. And if you don't, use whatever notepad or carrier pigeon or whatever Tony uses to keep on top of his life to remember the important things. I care about you, Tony. A little bit. Send me a text. Yeah, reply to it. Come on. Tony loves his emojis, you know. He's one of those annoying people, more emojis than words. Have you ever even used an emoji? Oh, yeah, okay. Fair play. We're getting sidetracked. I got distracted. <laughs> care. Care for people. Simple. If, even if you literally do that. This week, after church tonight, if someone says, you know, I've got an interview coming up on Tuesday, I do it midway through conversation. I'll say, I'm literally going to put that on my phone now. It's not rude. You're telling them. I'm just saying, wait, when you say Tuesday, interview Tony's new job. Yeah, like I'll just put it in my phone <laughs> with a heart emoji at the end. Care. So consistency. Commitment and care. Fourthly, conversation. Communication is key to any relationship. And again, you might be like, yeah, obviously. 
But if you are good at conversation, you will stand out amongst the crowd. So few people in our society know how to have a decent conversation. And the reason is, well, there's several reasons, but one of the primary reasons is because we are so self-obsessed. We're so self-centered and self-focused. And you'll see this all the time. You'll have a conversation with someone, you'll tell them your story, and rather than ask you a question of, of you know, oh, tell me a bit more, that was interesting, what's the first thing they'll do? They'll tell you their story, which in their head is probably a bit better than your story. Or you'll say something about, oh, how was your holiday? And they'll say, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it, I enjoyed it. And then it's just like dead silence, no follow-up, no conversation. It's just like, just give one follow-up question and this could actually be a bit of a conversation. Again, it comes down to care. If you care about someone, ask, ask a question. This week, take a little look at your conversations. Are you spending far more time speaking than you are listening? And if so, see if you can ask a few more questions. Now, I think another reason why we struggle with conversation, especially deeper conversation, which is so important, is many of us find it awkward. I was with um, a load of my mates who I've known since primary school over Christmas. There's about a dozen of us together on the 22nd. And um, it's fascinating. I've known these guys since I was four. Yet we get together, and despite knowing each other for decades... It's so superficial. We can talk about, will United be different under Solskjaer? We can talk about, you know, we can moan about how work isn't great, or we can, you know, talk about the weather hasn't been good. But when, you know, we bring up about that guy who's not there because his girl's just broken up with him, it just gets awkward, and no one really wants to talk about it, and it's just sort of like quickly move on, and someone will say some phrase like, hey, well, say la vie, and then we just like move on to the next thing. The reality is for many of us, we find deep conversation awkward. And that's something that in 2019, I'd encourage you. If that's you, if you're like, I hate deep conversation, go to the root of why that is. Get to the root of it. We run a Freed for Purpose course here, which lets you look at things that are holding you back in your life. For you, it might be, actually, I know there's some really deep-rooted stuff that I need to get sorted. And it might be that would be helpful to see a Christian counsellor. Something I've actually looked at in the past week, I'm like, I've got some deep stuff that I feel like I need to just sit down with someone who's trained at doing this and just go through it. Really great thing to do. Go deep into why you hate deep conversation. If you do nothing else in 2019, that is a worthwhile investment. So consistency, commitment, care, and conversation. Might seem simple. You might be like, John, this is like entry-level friendship stuff. But trust me, if you nail those four things, you will be so different from those around you. You will show the love of Jesus and it will make a huge difference, not just in your your little community that you're in, but in this church. We gain so much from great friendships and we can give so much. You can make a big difference. Those stats we've heard about loneliness you have an opportunity to be the change. And the solution to this loneliness isn't for us to just pray against it. In the book of James, uh, this whole thing is discussed where, um, about being not just hearers but doers. So if you see someone who's poor, for example, you don't just say, oh God, would you help the poor people? No, you give them food to eat. 
When you see people in Kenya who are in desperate poverty, don't say, ah, I pray that someone will help them. No, you start sponsoring a child. And equally, when you know that there's a loneliness epidemic in our nation, you don't just pray, oh, God, would you change it? Yes, you pray, but you say, God, how am I going to be the answer to that prayer? And you can be the answer to the biggest epidemic in our nation, literally killing people. The links between loneliness and illness are huge. You can make a difference in this nation, be a light in the lonely darkness. So what are some next steps? Again, if you're a journaler, if you've got a vision board, maybe you could take out one of these as your next step. So the start of the year, let's refocus. This week, have a look at your friendships. Are your friendships characterized by care, consistency, commitment, and conversation? Take a look. This week, even tonight, if you're a night owl, sit in bed tonight and just think for your friendships. Are my friendships characterized by those things? Another practical step for some would be join a community. As Ding said during the break, we have lots of communities that happen here. They're kicking off it again in February. We've got um, all sorts of different things for different interests, different nights. There's something for you. Join a community. Don't just join it, but turn up. Go every week and commit to it. Join a serving team. There's something powerful about serving side by side with someone. Of saying we've got the same vision, we're working towards this. And so if you're on the youth team with someone and you're having to sit down at the end of the night and be like, ah, why are they being so annoying? Yes, yeah, a bit annoying, but there's a moment of bonding between the two of you as you moan about the young people. Or if you're on the kids team and you're having to like clean up sick off yourself and like this is like, hey, we're in this together. If you're on the host team, you're trying to stack chairs, you're like, why do people never take their chairs off the their coats off the chairs? This is annoying. Hey, you can bond over that too. If you're not in a serving team, join one of the serving teams. Weekend away, another great opportunity to build friends. Church on a Sunday, it's great, amazing, come every week. But there's something special about going away with people into a different context. If you're not already booked in, you're thinking, I'd like to make more friends. I'd like to be more part of this community. It's one of the best opportunities you'll have all year. Book in. And finally, if you're someone who doesn't know Jesus, then you have the most amazing opportunity of all. Tonight can be the start of your journey of getting to know him. See, I talked earlier about how we're brothers and sisters, but the thing that unites us isn't we like singing a few songs or we like coming to this half-decent building. No, the thing that unites us is that we're one in Christ. And you can know that unity with Christ tonight. You don't have to wait to clear up your act. You don't have to say, well, you know, I I don't really look like this or you you don't know about my story. No, no, no. You can know tonight the forgiveness of God. You can be washed clean, adopted into his family, a child of God. Why wait? You can do it tonight. And last but not least, it's important to address what some of you I know might be thinking throughout this whole thing, which is, I've been hurt by friends. For some of you, this whole thing is painful because you've had friendships that have caused you to be hurt. People who you really loved and then they let you down. And C.S. Lewis has something to say about that too. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. 
If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. To love is to be vulnerable. To invest in friendships is risky. But the risk is worth it. The risk is worth it. Friendship is worth fighting for. We've forgotten that in our society. And the result has been loneliness. And in 2019, we as New Community Church have an opportunity to be a city on a hill, a light in a darkness, a family in a lonely and hurting world. And our hope and our dream is that we recapture what Jesus said, that people would know that we are his disciples by how we love one another. That people would say, they just, I walked into that building, there's something so different about them. I went to their community and there's a warmth that I haven't experienced. And they're just so inviting to me even though they don't know me. What is it? Or who is it that's changed them? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you call us friends. We know that our hearts are, um, yeah, in their natural state, wicked and dark, and we definitely don't deserve to be called friends by you. Yet we thank you that you love us. And the whole motivation of anything that we've heard about tonight is that we love because you first loved us. We love you back and we love others because when we look at all you've done for us, we can't help but want to love in return. And so God, I ask that we as new community, God, I pray for each one of us individually here tonight that we would leave different after today. God, I pray that you would help us to step out of our comfort zones. That increasingly when church is done rather than it just be let's break into our little cliques and our little huddles, that it'd be an amazing picture of unity and diversity, of people chatting to those they don't know, of people stepping out their comfort zone of family. And God, we, we need your strength. We know that we just would much prefer to hang out on our own or hang out with people like us, but we don't want to live like that anymore, God. We need your help, so would you come, Holy Spirit, Would you continue to transform our community? Would this be a light in the darkness? And we want to be a community that's growing, God. We're not a little clique that wants to stick as small as it is, God. We want to see more and more people added. God, we pray that in a year's time when 2020 is beginning, we have friends who we don't currently have now. People who you've saved and added to this church and who we've seen saved and invited them into our friendships for your glory and our good. Thank you, God. Amen.